Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it round his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped round him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Well, last week we finished um, a series that we'd planned on John chapter 8 uh, through to 12. And the, the plan had been to do a couple of weeks. We were going to think about um, uh, marriage and uh, singleness and things related to that from Matthew 19, but we took the view that's not quite what we need uh, right now as a, as a church family. So we've just decided just for the next two weeks just to keep going in, in John, just to look at the next um, chapters. It seems that the Lord has put John 13 before us, and so we're simply going to look at that and trust that each one of us will just see uh, Jesus and that that is uh, what is good uh, for us this morning. And we're, we're going to look at verses 1 to 20 over the next two weeks. This morning we'll le- really look at just the first five uh, verses. But this whole little section contains within it the last, some of the last words of Jesus uh, to his disciples. The last earthly words, quite a few of them, uh, over a number of, of chapters. But the last earthly words of, of Jesus 
And look, I don't know if you're up on, on sort of famous last words or those sorts of things. A few out there that people like and enjoy. Oscar Wilde's are the, the sort of famous ones that are often quoted where he was you know, lying in his room, I think, in Paris and it's a very busy wallpaper around him and he said, my wallpaper and I are fighting a duel to the death. One or other of us must go. And of course, it was, it was him who, who went. But famous last words. And here are Jesus's Famous last words to his closest friends. In fact, on the night before his death, before he was murdered. And so in these chapters, Jesus is preparing his disciples for the cross. He's preparing them for the fact that he will soon go away and they will be left on their own. And the question is, what did Jesus really want them to know as they looked back? What were the things that he wanted them to hold tight to about uh, him? And we just pick out two this morning, two key things it seems that Jesus wanted them uh, to know. And the first is he wanted them to know that he is always in control. He really wanted them to know that he's always in control. And this really comes out of verses 1 to to 3 and other verses in this section as well. But in our imaginations, let's... Go to this room. Let's, let's climb the stairs to the upper room in a house in Jerusalem. And we're told that on that Thursday evening, 13 men came together to share a Passover meal. We're not told that there were others in the room. We're not told if there were servants. But we know that there were 13 men uh, who were there. Uh, one of them would leave uh, early. The other 12 including Jesus, would would go from there to the Garden of Gethsemane. And by this time tomorrow, the lifeless body of Jesus would be carried, hauled, and put in a garden tomb. But before that, in these verses, John wants us to know what Jesus knew at that very moment, that evening. Uh, He knew in verse 1 that the hour of his death had come. He knew that he would be killed But he also knew that it wouldn't end in the grave. Did you notice in verse 1, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Jesus knew it didn't just end. It's not just I depart to to a grave. Jesus knew he was going to depart out of this world to the Father. He knew that he would rise. In other words, he was in control. He knew where it ended. And that little phrase, um, to the Father, to the Father, it's, it's, it's the same in the, in the Greek as John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God or, or to God. So the book of John, it comes in two halves. It's the book of signs which is chapters 1 to 12. That's why we sort of aimed to finish at the end of verse 12. It's a natural break. This is the start of the second half of the book, sometimes called the book of glory. And, And this start of the second book, it mirrors the start of the first book. At the start of the first book, the word was with God, and in the incarnation he came down, down, down. And now at the start of this second book, We're told he's come from God, and here in his death, he goes down, down, down as he returns to the Father. 
But you see, even as he descends to death, even as his life is taken from him, we're told that the Father has given all things into his hands. He's, he's in control. Maybe you notice later on in verse 19, Jesus makes this prediction about Judas. And then he says, verse 19, I'm telling you this now so that when it does take place, you'll remember that I promised it was going to happen. And you'll know that I'm here. You'll know that I'm God, that I'm in control. So Jesus is just putting down markers for them. So when they look back on this awful scene and the events that happened, they would know that Jesus was in control. And so verse 3, all things are in his hands. The God of all space and time, the Father has given to the Son all things. Everything that exists, every square inch of the universe, belongs to the one in this upper room amongst his disciples. Everything's in his hands. Remember he said, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. And yet here, having all things in his hands, having come from the Father, returning to the Father, what does he do? He takes the initiative. He takes the, the first step, if you like, towards his humiliation on the cross. What are we told? Verse, uh, verse 4, he rose from supper. He got up from the supper and he moved deliberately towards the degrading foot wash. He moved deliberately. He took the step towards the shame of the cross that was to come. Remember, Jesus is preparing them for his departure. He wanted them to look back and think Jesus was completely in control of what happened. Completely in control. He had all things in his hands. He didn't have to do that. He deliberately move towards his death and the shaming. You see, think about it for a minute. The disciples could have gone home on Good Friday evening, 24 hours later after what they'd seen and witnessed. They could have gone home and thought to themselves, well, God was not in control of that. They'd, they'd just witnessed the betrayal, the beating, the murder of their Lord and Savior and teacher. And they could have gone home that Good Friday evening. Maybe some of them did. Maybe many of them did. And thought, well, God was not in control of that. And yet, we know now as we look back, and they knew as they looked back, that that wasn't the case. Had they concluded that, they would have been wrong. They would have concluded that God's greatest work was his non-work. They'd have got it wrong. They would have concluded that God's greatest action in the cross was actually his absence. They would have been wrong. But Jesus wanted them to think back to the upper room. He wanted them to see that Jesus had full control, that he deliberately moved towards the cross, that he really was in control. And no doubt, as they went on in their lives with all of the things that they would face as disciples following Jesus, he wanted them to know that if he was in control of that worst moment of history, the cross of Christ, well, surely he was also in control of all of the lesser, harder moments of the lives of their disciples. And surely he would want us as disciples today 
to know that in our days right now. And so if we're here and we're disciples of Jesus, that's a comfort for us, whatever individually we're facing in life at the moment right now. And it is also a comfort for us as a church in the days we're living in after the statements that we heard last week. See, Jesus isn't just in control of the good seasons of church life, but of the harder ones, the, 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 the setbacks, the mess, the confusion. And he wanted his disciples in the room to know, and he wants us in the room here to know as well, that he's always in control. He was at this moment. He is today. But in case we think that that control isn't also a, a warm and a, a loving and a kind control, he also wanted them to know the second thing. He wanted them to know how much he loves his own. He wanted them to know, secondly, how much he loves his own. Slightly longer this point, but let's just pick it up from verse 1 again. Now, now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Here's the phrase. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. That means, in, in one sense, he loved them to the end of his life. But it also means he loved them to the fullest extent, to the end point of everything that he'd come to do. He didn't fall short of loving them in any way. He loved them to the absolute end point of what he'd come to do. And that end point, as we know, looking back, was the cross. Uh, tomorrow. He would show them the fullest extent of his love in the suffering and the shame that he was willing to bear for them. And the foot washing, the foot washing was to be a picture of that. Now, foot washing, it's, it's, what a, it's what a servant did. As I said, we're not told if there was a servant in the room. We know there were 13 there, but... If the servant wasn't there, it surely should have been something that they'd have done for one another. It certainly wasn't what the host or the teacher, as Jesus was, was expected to do in the culture of that day. To do so was to take the lowest position of all. And clearly the disciples must have been too proud to do so. Uh, Luke, when he records this same event in chapter 2 of his gospel, he says that they were, at this moment, really busy bickering about who was the greatest disciple. That's what they were going on about at that moment. Too proud, no doubt, to notice one another's needs and their, and their feet. And so none of them did it. And so Jesus did it. Jesus washed their feet. Now look, I'm not sure how often you approach someone else's feet. It's not something that we, 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 we tend to like to do. But just to understand, that, you know, this isn't, a, this isn't a pedicure. This isn't a, this isn't a sort of making someone's already clean feet pretty, you know, with sort of cream and exfoliation and stuff that I know nothing about. These are, these are manual laborers 
Some of them fishermen. These are guys who live in, in sandals, with dust, with, with sweat. There's, there's open sewage. They're, they're sheep droppings caked on their feet. That's, that's the picture. And Jesus, the teacher, Jesus who has all things in his hands, takes the lowest position. Takes the shameful post of a, of a slave with everyone else in the room physically above him. I mean, he's kneeling. He's the lowest guy kneeling, going round all of the feet below those in the room. And it's staggering, given verse 3. Have a look, verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. I mean, how would you finish that sentence? He, he did what? Jesus, knowing that he was above all, he revealed his breathtaking majesty for everyone to see. No, no. Jesus, knowing he was above all, rose and put himself below everyone else. Think about it. When Jesus came from heaven to earth, he didn't stop being God. He kept his godness. He added to his godness humanity. We'll think about that in a few weeks' time as we have a couple of sermons on the incarnation. So, so think about it. God, God the Son, the God of the universe knelt before fallen humanity in love. He served the creatures that he made. It should have been completely the other way around, us kneeling before him. But think about it, God the Son. God knelt before fallen humanity and in love he served us. And so we're told, verse 4, he Maybe goes to the corner of the room and he picks up a bowl and a towel. And one by one, he went round the room. How long did it take? We're not told. Half an hour? Longer? No doubt it was a scene that was forever imprinted on their memories. And that was kind of the point. Verse, verse 7 tells us they didn't understand at the time it was only later that they saw that Jesus was teaching them about the cross and what he would do at the cross. And here's the thing. We don't know how many people of these um, 12 actually saw Jesus die. We don't know. We know that they were scattered. We know that some stood at a distance. We don't know how many actually saw this. But all 12 of them saw this. You see? All 12 of them saw this. Jesus individually said to each one of them in the foot washing, I love you to the end. I love you to the end. I love you to the end. I am willing to go to the lowest point of humiliation for you and you that you might be raised up. And that must have stuck with them. In the Old Testament, um, there's a prophet called Hosea. And God, God used the story of Hosea's life to, to really tell the story of, of God and his love for his people. But the story was an unusual one. It was an unusual life for a prophet to live. We're, we're told that his wife, Gomer, I left him for someone else. 
told that she became a, a, a prostitute. And then we're told that for Hosea to, to get her back, on one occasion he, he sort of found out where she was and found that she was in, she was in the market, that she was being sold to, to other men. And imagine this, he had to buy his own wife back. Took out the money, he, he bought her back. Look at the humiliation of that scene. He did it because he loved her. And God was teaching through his Hosea his passionate love for his people. That, that he would be willing, like Hosea, to go to the lowest point of degradation, to go to the humiliation of that in love for his people. That is what he thought of his people. That is how highly he prized them and loved them. That he would do anything, be humiliated in whatever way it was, to show his love for them. And here, as we approach the cross, that story of Hosea, that ancient story, was fulfilled in history in Jesus. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. To the end point of utter humiliation for them in the foot washing and the cross. And this visual aid that all of them saw was designed to imprint that truth about God's love in the cross on each one of them. But notice, notice what the disciples must have realized with a shock as they looked back on that scene. Judas was still in the room when Jesus washed the feet. Jesus washed his feet. I hadn't really spotted this, but John includes it in verse 2. Deliberately, I think, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing, and, and on it goes. This wasn't Judas pre the decision to betray. No, no, no. This was Judas after he'd made that decision, after Satan had come into his heart. This was Judas with the, with the murderous thought settled in his heart. So that as, as Jesus washed his feet, Judas is already thinking, do you know what I could do with 30 pieces of silver? And if they kill Jesus for it, I'm okay with that. That's what Jesus was thinking as Jesus washed his feet. And I guess Judas never forgot the look on Jesus' face as he loved him even to the end. Remember Romans 5 says that while we were still enemies, God loved us. And so here we see the extent of Jesus' love from the, the highest, from God to the lowest, the slave, the, the willing to be humiliated, the, the breadth, the length, the height, the depth of Jesus' love for his own. And so remember, Jesus is preparing them for when he's gone. He wanted them to be sure that he loved them. And God wants us here to know that whatever situation we're facing in life, fear, sadness, lonely sin, he loves us. And for us in our sad church situation, Jesus would want us here in the room to know how much he loves us. His own. See, we might say, I, I know that Jesus is in control, but I, I've lost sight of his, of his love 
for us. And Jesus would want us to know that he has all things in his hands and that he loves us completely. And he proves it because he loved us to the end on the cross. And it would be good to pray that we all know that at the moment. We're about to share the, the Lord's Supper. We're about to share the Lord's Supper. It's, it's kind of Jesus' physical way of, of saying to us um, in a sort of visible gospel word, his way of saying, I, I love you. But just a word on, 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 on this, maybe especially this week. I, I, I would guess that some of us may this week especially feel relationships may be strained or, or impaired with a brother or sister at the moment. And God, God wants to help us through the Lord's Supper, I think, to, to take that seriously, to, to think about it. There are a couple of verses you, I could mention that you might look up later. One's 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 28, which says that one, we should examine ourselves before we, 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 we come. One way we should examine ourselves, we should be aware of the body, the, the body of the church, the body of Christ, his people, to stop us from just going, oh, this is just a sort of bit and bread and wine. I, you know, I take this. I don't have to you know, pay attention to the, the, the people around us. And Jesus would say, no, no, the, the people matter. That's the whole point of the Lord's Supper. And Jesus would, would want us to think about one another. And those relationships. There's another bit, Matthew 5, 23, where, where Jesus says, look, if you're going to the temple, remember, um, and suddenly you remember your, your brother or sister and you've got something against him. Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled with your brother or your sister and then come back. And, and that's why, by the way, lots of churches do a sort of sharing of the peace. Some churches do that. Not just a sort of friendly time when we get to sort of catch up with the people that we, 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 we like. As a, as a teenager, I, I think I used it mainly to challenge one of my friends to see who could shake the hand of the furthest person away and get back to my seat before the, the sort of time was done. But it's, it's more than that. It's actually designed to be an opportunity to, to make peace with one another before we share bread and wine. Now, look, it's not our custom here to, to do that. I thought it would probably be a bit odd and awkward if we suddenly started doing it today of, of all days. But look, maybe there, there may be some in conscience here today who say, actually, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm, I'm, I'm okay with that person. Maybe it's, maybe it's right to just let the bread and the wine pass to, today, and that, that would be okay. That would be okay. But let that be a prompt from Jesus to not, to not let the impairment continue, to seek to sort it out, to to try and have a, a, a coffee or a phone call before we next share the Lord's Supper. We're maybe not used to doing that. That's hard. There's lots at the moment as a church family we're not used to. We're going to learn new things together. Maybe it looks like adopting a posture of, of in effect, saying to one another, look, it, it seems that we stand in a different place on things. But I want you to know that you're my brother. You're my sister. I love you. And I will love you. We're saying our unity in Jesus matters more than our disunity in other places. And, and where in effect we, we may not see eye to eye, we find the motivation, the strength to find a way forward, friends, at the foot of, at the, foot of the cross as we remember the death of Jesus. At the foot of the cross.
As, as we close, I, I heard a story of a husband and wife who'd been estranged for, for many years. They'd not seen each other. And sadly, their grown-up son died. Uh, the funeral happened. And many years later, there was still little contact between them. But one day, one of them was visiting the graveside of, of the son. They were tending it with flowers. And unexpectedly, the other one had arrived at the same time to do the same thing. And they stood next to each other, uh, looking at the, the grave. They wept for their son together. They held hands. And the bonding, you see, the, the starting of healing, it happened in the shared love and affection that they had for their son. And the Bible would say of us that it's the same for us, not, not for our son, but for God's son. And in a shared affection and love that we have for him. And so maybe we find it hard to, to sort of look, so to speak, directly at one another right now, to, to look eye to eye, face on. And so maybe as a church, the place to start is to stand side by side, looking at Jesus and his cross together as we share bread and wine this morning. And one might say, in effect, that's my saviour. And the other one says, that's my saviour too. And one might say in their heart, I need him for my sin. And the other one would say, and I need him too. Jesus is in control. Jesus loves us very much. Let's pray. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Father, we praise you for your son and the way that he loved to the end in the humiliation of the cross, bearing our shame that we might not have to because he was passionately concerned uh, for us. And we pray for one another here in the room that each one of us would, would leave this place going into the week knowing that you are still in control and that you love us very much. In Jesus' name, amen.